You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series podcast. This interview was a lot of fun and filled with great information. Michael Johnson is a physician contract lawyer I found on Instagram where he's dropping high quality tips under at physician contracts. He wants to normalize negotiations and stand up for what's right. You're going to love this one. Something you may not love is clinic. So join me this Wednesday for Stop Hating Clinic, where I will talk about ways to make clinic more tolerable. Go to bosssurgery.com to register. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I have a very special guest. His name is Michael Johnson. He is a lawyer that deals with physicians on contracts and all the things. And I found him accidentally on Instagram and, you know, we've been chatting and he's got so much to offer. So I'm so excited that you're here. I can't wait to hear all the things. So Michael, tell me a little bit about yourself. Man, thank you so much for that intro. I've I've listened to your last couple podcasts and the the guests you've had on have been pretty incredible. So to follow like Dr. Turner, I listened to him this morning, that one, it was amazing. But thank you for that intro. I'm a lawyer that handles physician contracts. Uh, my wife is a psychiatrist and we live in Wisconsin. Uh, she did her training down in uh, Louisiana, New Orleans, where we met. And um, that was really the start of physician contracts for me. Uh, back in March, March 6th of 2016, I was swiping around on Bumble and ended up meeting my wife. And she was in med school at the time. She was about to match, matched in New Orleans, thank goodness, uh, the next week and um, kind of grew from there. And through my wife's experiences with their first moonlighting contracts and for uh, the upper levels, getting their first contracts and kind of coming to me and asking, what does this mean? Um, I learned about physician contracts, a fascinating area. Uh, there's so many different types of physician contracts, employment contracts, independent contracts, shareholder, non-shareholder. There's so many different facets here, um, but I really enjoyed it. So when it was time for me to start a solo practice, I worked for law firms for five years first. And when it was time to start a solo practice in August of 2019, it was a week before my son was born, my first kid, um, I committed to helping small businesses and physicians, and physicians primarily on physician contract matters, and also startup matters for small, small practices, that sort of thing. Uh, but my real passion is helping physicians get better contracts. That's great. And was it mostly your wife's influence or had you had a passion for this before that? So I had um, employment law background. So I dealt with non-competes, non-solicits, a lot of the more popular, more common, uh, more known physician contract issues for engineers and architects. I did some construction law before, insurance law, mostly business law, business litigation. So I had some experience in employment matters. Um but yeah, it was really my wife. Before uh, before I met my wife, I didn't really know much about what physicians go through. No one in my family was a physician. Uh, they were having many physician friends. But through meeting her 
seeing what she went through with residency and into her first post-training job, watching all of her friends who became, obviously, all of my friends, our mutual friends, watching them all go through it, uh, was really was really moving uh, to kind of experience this also as a physician spouse. Um, I love advocating for physician spouses as well because I'm one of them. Uh, but yeah, it was, it's amazing what you guys go through, especially with your contracts. Yeah. And this is, you know, the whole premise behind the boss business and surgery series is these lessons that are not taught in residency and no one tells us about contracts. And just like you alluded to, there's so many different kinds of jobs. You know, I was in the military and now I've had employed contract and now, and then navigating a practice management group and then all the things. I know that we kind of talked about when you should start, when you should start considering like the negotiations and the contracts and you had kind of a surprising answer. So tell me when, when you should start considering all this. So I advocate for starting early. I think that if you're a year to 15 months out, like that late spring before your last year, uh, my experience has been that sometimes employers uh, are really hungry during that time. And if you start looking around that time, you can ask for a lot of things uh, and you might have the most leverage the earlier that you start. So I really like to encourage physicians to start 12 to 15 months out if they can. Sometimes also uh, those months for residents are a little bit lighter. Like those first few months when you are the upper level can be really challenging. I guess it depends on your specialty and what's going on. Um, but I'm talking to a lot of folks who um, are finishing right now. They're, good. they're planning on finishing in the summer of 2023. So they're looking to negotiate for that 2023 contract. Uh, but they're super busy as an upper level right now, and residencies have you do so much work, and they get you flying all over the place. So if you can start early during that spring, uh, then I've seen and I've helped some physicians get some really great contracts, get some really great concessions during that time. But I encourage folks to start early. Uh, in this season, I also will encourage folks to try to get their contract negotiated, signed, and finished. Uh, maybe a little bit earlier than most because of issues with credentialing right now. Uh, there's a lot of practices that uh, are struggling to properly staff their groups, including credentialing, including like credentialing companies. I don't know exactly what they do. I need to figure that out. But they, they're they not the fastest and the residents don't always understand this. So they, they think that they're fine if they wait until April and May to finalize their contract. But that's a real roll of the dice because there's no guarantees that you can get credentialed uh, at all the places that you're required to get credentialed at in a three or four month period. Yeah. And I know that there's two main areas of credentialing. You know, there's the hospital privilege credentialing. And that's like you have the ability to practice in the hospital. But I know that is not what you're talking about. You know, give us an idea of this insurance credentialing that you're talking about. What does that mean? So they, they need to... Obtain just a ton of information about you, uh, and you got to fill out. My wife has gone through this a couple times. The amount of time it takes to actually fill out all the paperwork, do it properly, get it submitted uh, for insurance credentialing, credentialing uh, can be quite arduous, especially if you are also working full time, right? So they'll often come back requesting more information or requesting. Uh, clarifying information on uh, what you did during residency and where you worked. If you had any like moonlighting positions during residency, they might need some information from them. 
so it can take some time. And then also uh, June, July, August, um, what are people doing? They're kind of goofing off, right? Like they're, they're taking vacations, they're going to the beach, they're uh, using PTO. So it's really hard to press uh, a bunch of folks to do work extra quickly over the summer. Um, and I see that result in a, a start date delay claims quite often, far more than physicians uh, initially think. A lot of these physician contracts have really employer-friendly language regarding start date, such that if you're not fully credentialed on the start date, whatever that date is, August or September, or um, I encourage folks to give themselves at least a few weeks break between the end of residency. We can come back to that piece. But usually it's like sometime in August or September that they want to start, right? If the employer, if, if the physician is not fully credentialed on the start date, the contract usually allows the employer to delay the start date and not pay the physician. Hmm. So let's say you're supposed to start on August 1st and you're not credentialed, they can just choose to not let you come in and start working and you just got to wait around. You're not getting a paycheck. So if you move, maybe money's a little bit tight, a little bit low, maybe you bought a house, maybe you made some other investments or you tried to pay down some debt or something like that, expecting to get a check on August 1st, that can be super painful. And also some of these contracts allow the employer to just unilaterally terminate the contract if you're not fully credentialed on the start date, no payment at all. Um, so I would watch out for start date claims, especially this coming season. Uh, try to get your contract negotiated, signed, and get all the credentialing information in as soon as you possibly can. Uh, six months, you should be safe. But if you're like two or three months out, you might have a bit of a problem. I completely agree because, I mean, you can't see a patient and, you know, put, submit a claim to the insurance company without that agreement that is occurs when you get the credentialing from the insurance company. A lot of people, I really had no concept of that until, I mean, not when, obviously when I was in the army and I didn't have it when I was employed because that stuff's just sort of happened. And I had no idea about it until, you know, um, I hired this new partner. And then um, when I switched jobs myself to realize you have to wait for those things, some are easier to get and some are just, you know, take forever, but you really can't charge an insurance company without an agreement. Yeah, I have sympathy for employers on this issue because as long as they're trying their best, then it's really not their fault, right? It's not their fault that the insurer is super slow and super unreasonable as insurers often are. And if you can't pay the physician for the work that they do, uh, it's just really challenging to bring them on. So it's definitely an issue that I don't think residents are taught. I don't think there's that class. There's no, I don't know that there's didactics on that issue in residency. No, I mean, I think it's it's overwhelming. And just like you said, everyone's busy doing other things. You know, there's already so much in training. And, you know, if, if they don't see the absolute like urgency of it, it'll have to wait because everything always feels urgent when you're overwhelmed and doing a lot of things. I know that you had mentioned that the interview process is actually the start of when you start considering some of these negotiation things through your contract. So take us through, um, you're now considering and going now to your interviews. What are some of the things that you would uh, advise someone to do? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, during the interview process, the overarching advice is to ask a ton of questions about obligations. What does the job actually require you to do? 
Because until you know that, you really can't evaluate compensation. You don't know if it's fair and reasonable. You don't know how much time, how much energy, how compacted your work is going to be uh, or when you're going to be forced to do it. Um, so if, if you don't know those things, then how can you evaluate uh, compensation? You can't. So during the interview process, interview with questions about fit, a lot of details about the job, um, and listen very closely to what they say, what their answers are. Um, and don't be afraid to ask a ton of follow-ups. Uh, one piece of advice for residents, they're often concerned that the questions that they ask are gonna make them sound dumb or like not fully like professional or like they don't know what they're talking about. Employers know that you don't know what you're talking about at this point. Like you're a resident, you're coming out, you have no experience doing this. Match, the match system is your only like past experience with getting a job and that is just total nonsense, right? So they know that you don't know what you're talking about. So it is okay to ask questions that you think might not be um, the smartest questions to ask. Don't be afraid of that. Uh, also, you kind of have an advantage too because you get to ask really difficult questions and your employer kind of has to answer them. Um, I like to coach physicians or residents uh, a little bit about how to ask questions. Uh, I'm kind of fascinated with this being an attorney. I'm a litigator. I ask questions all the time. I love going to court. I love, I deposed a lot of physicians before I um, started focusing on physician contracts. Uh, so the asking, like the strategy about how to ask questions is a lot of fun. I encourage physicians to ask a lot of questions that start with how and, and what and try to avoid why. So let's start with how. How um, really creates really open-ended questions that require the answerer to keep talking. You have a problem. You don't understand what the call schedule means. You can ask, how does the call schedule work? How do you determine who gets what call? How do you determine which physicians gets preferential call, if any? Uh, how can I figure out how many calls I'm going to get per night? But what, like what and how kind of go together a little bit. Um, what questions uh, are also super helpful because they elicit kind of open-ended responses. What does that mean? What, um, if you kind of repeat something that you don't understand, if you say, could you explain that to me? Or how does that work? Um, if you can get your employer during the interview process to talk a lot and give you a ton of information about what the job requires, uh, you can use that during the negotiation process on the back end. All those details about the job are usually not in the contract. So if the employer is promising you, let's say, Q10 call, and that's what they say over and over again during the interview process, uh, when you get to the contract, I bet you 95% of the time it's going to say call shall be distributed by the employer in the sole discretion or something like that. That's not Q10 call, right? That's the, the employer saying I get to do give out call however I see fit. And it's usually going to be to the physician that has the weakest contract or they have the most leverage over them if it becomes an issue. Uh, so 
getting details out of your employer like that during the interview process can be super valuable because then on the back end, you know, okay, that's the amount of call that they expect. I can ask them during the negotiation process to make that promise in the contract. If, if you say it was Q10 call, this entire interview process, why, uh, I use the why question, why, um, don't, don't do that unless you really want to elicit an emotional response. But why can't you put Q10 call in the contract? Yep. That's a really hard question to answer from an employer. Like, because I don't want to, because I don't want to honor that promise, it's really challenging. So the, the overarching theme is ask far more questions than you think are necessary. Ask open-ended questions. Listen closely to the response. Um, also educate yourself on the front end on the type of questions that you really need to ask to evaluate that type of job. Um, but yeah. I completely agree. And you know, I think a lot of times the interview process, they're so in their own head that they're so worried about how they're gonna come across that they're looking inward and they're not realizing they're supposed to be looking outward. All those red flags that they will eventually find are oftentimes in the interview process. And I always um, tried, I like the visualization um, idea of, you know, if you imagine a spotlight, do you feel like you're under the spotlight? Because if you feel like you're under the spotlight, you are, it's directed the wrong way. You need to find a way to direct the spotlight onto them so you can get the information that you need. And I think these open-ended um, how questions are an excellent way to do that. Uh, so I like to explain too that half of this interview is the physician interviewing the practice. Occasionally, there are practices that are like so attractive, so sought after that it's really more of like a one-sided interview and then they decide who they want to pick. That's not the norm right now. The norm is that practices, particularly larger corporate groups, the mega health groups, have more openings than there are new physicians coming out. Just a supply and demand thing. There's few physicians and many open spots. They need you more than you need them, frankly. Uh, and a big part of my job is to explain that kind of very simple premise to physicians, particularly residents coming out, that you actually have the power. You are the hostage taker. Like you're the one that can give out the, the, uh, the medical services and they need those so bad. They need them so bad. So you have the power and like half of this is you interviewing them. That's a great perspective. And I think that they just don't really appreciate how valuable that they actually are. Um, now, when it comes to the, the interview, I think I remember seeing a reel that you had, like all of these promises they could sort of discard. So what was that called again? Yeah, so one of my favorite clauses, like boring clauses in employment contracts is the entire agreements clause. And for contract lawyers, business lawyers, we all know what this is. It's common in every single business contract. And it basically says that any oral promises made before or during the contract negotiations are not enforceable, that the only enforceable uh, promises between the parties is what's written in the contract. And that's my first or second slide in almost every presentation that I give to residents. I was literally working on one uh, right now before we started. Uh, and I put that in there as the first uh, slide because it really answers the questions, do I have to negotiate? Can I just trust whatever the employer told me during the interview process as an enforceable promise? Like, why does a contract even matter? It matters because of that provision. If that provision wasn't there, then 
we might be having a different conversation, but it's there in like 99.9% of contracts that I read. Uh, and it really operates to negate any specific promises made during the interview process. Hmm. So basically saying like all those campaign promises, I'm, I'm holding myself not accountable for any of those things. <laughs> exactly. I realize I promised you Q10 or, or better called during the interview process, but that wasn't in the contract. And now we have half the positions that we had when I made that promise during the interview process that's not enforceable. So now it's Q5. Um, and that's, that can be really um, challenging. I realize like I'm, I'm kind of laughing about this, uh, trying to bring some humor to it. But that piece can be just really painful on a personal level. Like if a physician takes a job expecting one set of duties, of obligations, they have a vision that if they take this job, this is what my life is going to look like. But then it's changed. It's changed unilaterally because the employer feels like, and you don't have anything in the contract to protect you. Uh, that can be super challenging just on a personal level. And you know, if you're, if one of your listeners is dealing with that right now, like I, I feel for you. I listen to this. I hear this from physicians constantly that they brought me under into the 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 company, brought me here under one set of promises. And I believe them, and now they've changed. Now they've changed their mind. They're not doing that anymore. Um, and that can be super challenging. So uh, my, my hope is that through all of my videos and education and, and what I do, that I'm able to protect physicians from that problem. And also, if it comes anyways, that we have an exit strategy to get you out. Perfect. And along those lines, you know, a lot of people haven't even really thought about the exit strategy. You know, you're really excited about the job and you're ready to go. So what are some of the exit strategy considerations that you want to ask um, or, or have people consider? Yeah. So the most um, kind of ignored sections of the contract is what I like to call the leverage and exit uh, sections of the contract. Everyone wants to know what is compensation? What's the base compensation? What's the base protection? What's the signing bonus? That's super exciting, super sexy, right? How, how big is the check going to be when I sign this thing? Um, but they really don't always pay attention, particularly first contract positions. Second contract, third contract tend to pay attention a lot more. But first contract positions typically do not pay attention to leverage and exit pieces, primarily the non-compete, but also the non-solicit, both of patients and of employees. That can be incredibly valuable, non-solicit of employees. Um, but then moonlighting, I love negotiating for an open moonlighting piece, uh, depending on specialty surgery, like might not be as, as important, but on a lot of specialties, having the option to moonlight can be very, very powerful for your exit strategy. Um, and then, uh, you have the malpractice tail issue. How much, if any, will you have to pay on the malpractice tail to get out? Um, also big signing bonuses usually come with payback provisions such that if you don't stay for the entirety of whatever that term is that attaches to the signing bonus, then you might be required to pay some or all of that signing bonus back. Mm -hmm. And that's a big surprise to folks. If you get a job, so physicians typically change jobs uh, at a very high rate during the first two years after training, something like 
Uh, I forget where I saw that, but it was a really high number. I think it'd even be higher, like if it wasn't for these really punitive leverage and exit pieces. Imagine you take a signing bonus, uh, $100,000, let's say, and it extends over five years. So after taxes, you probably get about 55 or 60K, but you still have to pay back 100, which can be painful. But then you take that money and you put use it for a down payment on a house, so you pay off some credit card debt or you pay off some debt or something you don't have it anymore. If you don't like that job and you want to go somewhere else, you don't have cash on hand to pay back that signing bonus. Um, and you're kind of stuck, like you're kind of in, in a painful situation. So um, that can be a really painful piece. But when you're looking at a contract holistically, like, yeah, it's, it's exciting to look at compensation, and you realize that you got to kind of know what the job is. So you realize, you know, you need to know something about the obligations. But if you don't pay attention to leverage and exit to your exit strategy, then you could get stuck. Employers can really change compensation at any time. And the leverage and exit pieces are still applicable. Like, let's say they brought you in under a $300,000 um, base protection and then you switch over to productivity after two years, but productivity is super low, such that now you only make 200K instead of 300K. Well, if you wanna leave, the leverage and exit piece still applies to you, even though your employer has kind of reduced your compensation. It's another piece that first contract positions don't always um, grasp, but understanding very clearly your next best option and how painful an exit will be uh, is really important to understand whether you can tell your employer no. Every physician, every single one, has to be able to tell their employer no. If you can't tell your employer no, then that's going to lead to burnout. It's going to lead to you taking on more patients and more call and more hours and losing more autonomy and all the things that we know uh, lead to burnout. Um, so a big, a big focus of my work is helping physicians map that out. I thought that was like such an important point that you had on one of your reels about like, we get so excited, like I got $10,000 more on my sign on bonus, but without the details of so many things, you could really get hosed. Um, I think the sign on bonus that I had in a previous contract was, was great where uh, they would forgive it each year that you were there. So like at, at the end, it was like, you know, sort of a prorated kind of thing, which was helpful um, knowing that you could potentially leave and not have to for spend all of that back. Um, and the, a lot of people don't understand tail and nose coverage, meaning that, you know, when you practice, you still have the patients still have the opportunity to sue you once you leave. That tail coverage is to cover you for any suit that may happen after you leave employment. So it's a separate insurance policy that you have to buy. And you negotiate either a tail uh, insurance for that job you currently have, or if you didn't have a tail, you can um, negotiate a nose. Um, right. The nose coverage is another option. But yeah, you hit a you hit a really important point about the specific terms of the signing bonus. I see some where you have to stay the entire period to have the entire amount forgiven. That can be really rough. You've been in a job for four years and you decide to leave or they decide to terminate you without cause in year three of a four year contract. And they're like, oh, yeah, you owe us $100,000 now. And they might even have a provision in their contract where you have to keep working for them for six months after they give you a without cause termination notice. And they might have something in the contract where they get to take 
uh, your salary, not pay you to recoup any signing bonus that is owed. Or if they don't have that, sometimes they have attorney's fees provisions that say, if you don't pay it back within 30 days of exit, then we have to sue you and we will eventually collect. And oh, by the way, we're, you have to pay our attorney's fees. And oh, by the way, they're super expensive, right? So it can really add up super quickly. Um, the signing bonus payback trap uh, is really, really important. Also, if you negotiate on signing bonus, but you ignore the rest of leverage and exit, your renegotiation on the second contract is gonna be really hard. So let's say you got 100K that covers four years. After four years, you should get another $100,000 retention bonus, right? Like, why should you just waive compensation because you've been at the employer a long time? I don't, I don't think that's, that's, that's fair or appropriate. Uh, you can negotiate for a retention bonus, like a continuing bonus that matches your initial signing bonus. But it's going to be really hard to pull that off if they know that you can't leave. Right. And I know a lot of people um, don't necessarily look at that that financial piece of it, but I do know a lot of people look at the whole idea of non-compete. And I think you had a great point about non-competes because I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, it's not enforceable anyway, so I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah. So the two questions that I get the most from folks who maybe like haven't paid attention to like the reels or haven't really like folks who, who don't really know me, they say, can I negotiate for more signing bonus? And I say, yes, of course, but. And then... The next question is, is this non-compete even enforceable? Can I just sign this and just know that the courts aren't going to enforce it? Um, the short answer is no, hard no. The non-competes differ in each state a little bit. So to say like a blanket, they're enforceable in every situation by a court if you went to court to enforce it in every state? No, I can't answer that. Sometimes there are exceptions. Uh, there's some states that you can't uh, force an employee to sign a non-compete. California is the biggest one. There's like South Dakota and Oklahoma and one other that is escaping me right now. But for the vast majority of states, non-competes are enforceable in the vast majority of situations. So let's say you have a non-compete. You're working under, let's say it's two years and 30 miles and you identify a job that you want to take, you wanna leave this current job and take the other one, but it's 25 miles away. First of all, you can't plug it into Google Maps and do the driving distance. That's not how it works. You gotta go and find something that's going to draw a, a radius, a bubble, like a perfect circle on the map, and that is the distance. Folks send me driving distance all the time. I'm like, no, that's not what it is. So it's radius. Um, unless it says something very specific, otherwise in your contract, then unlikely. Um, if it's within that bubble and your second employer knows about your non-compete from the first employer and knows that it's within that bubble, your second employer, employer is probably not going to hire you. Even if there is a defense to your non-compete, even if it would be a coin flip in court, they're not going to want to take that risk. And also that employer might have non-competes of their own. They might also be two years and 30 miles. So they don't want to be on the side in court making arguments that two years and 30 miles is an unreasonable non-compete because that's what their contracts say. So the market will enforce some non-competes on their own, even if a court wouldn't. 
that's a piece that like I try to talk about in every uh, presentation that I give because it really kind of frames the non-compete issue appropriately that you can't just ignore it. You got to really pay attention, factor it into your exit strategy. Also, let's say you wanted to challenge your non-compete. You thought, you know what? I think I can beat it in court. Uh, it's going to cost you in time and money. So let's say that your um, your termination clause is 90 to 180 days. You got to give 90 to 180 days notice. While you're still working, you could file what's called a declaratory judgment action, file something in court and argue in court before you even leave your job that the non-compete is unenforceable. Um, that might not go over super well. Like your last couple of months at that employer might not be very happy, right? Uh, because you're literally suing them uh, for the non-compete. But then you're going to have to hire somebody probably like me. It's probably going to cost some five-figure number to fight it. And it's going to cost you some time. Depending on your uh, specific state, you might be able to get a declaratory judgment action done in a matter of a couple months but or a few months but it might take longer. So while you might be able to defeat a non-compete, maybe you have a 50-50 chance, you have to wait a few months to several months and you gotta pay tens of thousands of dollars. And like during that time, you're kind of in limbo, right? Like if your next employer is not gonna hire you until a court finds that the non-compete is unenforceable, then you might go without salary you might not have a job maybe you have a moonlighting job that can float you for a while but you might lose money that way so it can be super painful even if the non-compete ultimately is found unenforced in court later yeah and um i know that a lot of the arguments when people have these contracts they go to these you know big box um hospitals and stuff and they say oh no that that contract it's it's everyone does that we don't ever change it it's all the same it's not negotiable what do you tell people when they see when I mean, they what else are they going to tell you at that moment right like they hand you a contract and they say this is our contract that's our standard contract they're also going to say and it's not negotiable like i talk about this all the time and i'm hopeful that physicians don't like start giggling when that line is is hit on them because it comes in the first email or it comes in person pretty much uh every time like at that point, they really have no motivation to say, yeah, hire Michael Johnson and let him rewrite this contract and we'll sign that. It's totally, they're, they're not going to do that, obviously. Uh, their negotiation strategy is to make, at that moment, to make you feel small and rather unimportant, ununique, and convince you to just sign it, thinking that, oh, there's no chance for me to make any important changes. Um now, realistically, uh, it's highly likely that we're not going to rewrite the entire contract. Occasionally, I can do that in this very like small practice-specific or unique situation that I can just rewrite the contract that, that they'll sign. But for most of the big box, they're not going to let me just rewrite the entire thing. But we can get really important changes, uh, specific provisions in there that can be incredibly helpful to you um, I think I've let the cat out of the box at this point. I don't really hide it, but like when we were negotiating my wife's contract, the focus for us was schedule. She wanted a condensed schedule such that um, she works very hard and she 
felt confident that she could do a 312 schedule in outpatient psychiatry, so three days a week, and then have four-day weekends where she could uh, spend a ton of time being mom, and we can travel, and we can have a lot of family time. And that was the focus of our negotiation. That was our, our life plan that we then tried to use our physician contract to execute, okay? Um, and we're able to get that in the contract. That was not something that was technically standard. Uh, they maybe, I don't know if they made it standard after we did it, but usually like for psychiatry, you can get a four tens instead of like a five eights or whatever. Um, but yeah, there's, so having that in her contract is incredibly valuable, uh, for us. And then she is also, uh, pursuing PSLF. So if you're at an employer that that might be a question, you might want to negotiate some termination clause, something like that, that allows you to get out rather quickly if your employer loses their 501c3 status, right? So there are like little things, like for that example, what argument would an employer have to tell you no to that request? You say, look, I've got $500,000 in student loans. Like, I've got to work for a PSLF eligible uh, employer. And I need something in the contract that allows me to get out relatively quickly and painlessly if you lose that status. Like, the non-compete is unenforceable and the malpractice tail issue changes or uh, something like that. I mean, what, what reason do they have to say no to that? There's tons of things like that that are incredibly valuable to an individual um, that really they wouldn't have a good reason to say no to. So I love negotiating those those types of very specific uh, provisions of contracts. Yes, and so explain what um, what that means by that too, because I think a lot of people don't understand that hospitals have particular statuses that have influence on you as well. Yeah, so ho most hospitals say most hospitals are uh, nonprofits. And a lot of the big box mega health groups are also like comically nonprofits, such that if you work for them, uh, you would qualify for public service loan forgiveness um, for the vast majority of folks in our generation. That's one of the first questions that I ask for folks in residency, where are your loans at? What is your specialty? Okay. Uh, are we going for PSLF or not? My general advice on PSLF is if your, your income is probably less than one X of your loans, then you might be better just trying to pay them off. But if you get into like 1.5 and 2X, then you might be better really considering PSLF, especially if your residency program qualifies for PSLF. A lot of residency programs do, a handful don't. So you really need to know that during the match process. We're getting a little off topic. But um, you need to know your strategy for, for paying it off. Also, like if you have kids and you have other expenses, kids are kind of expensive, you might want to favor PSLF a little bit more. Uh, we know that a little bit in our house. Um, but yeah, so going back to your employer, your employer really needs to match whatever your plan is for your student loans. If your employer is a nonprofit and you, you know, have done a good job of keeping your student loans with your, with FEN loans, with your public servicer, um, and you've taken the steps that you need to protect your right to get pu uh, public service loan forgiveness, then hospital groups, big hospital groups can be uh, a, a good choice for you. Um, 
if you're not going for PSLF, but you have student loans, then you can still go for a hospital. Like, why not? But you don't have to. Like, you can work for a private employer uh, and still pay off your loans. You can also sometimes use those loans as a negotiating tool to say, hey, look, I realize you're not a non-for-profit. I got a bunch of student loans. Can we tag some extra bit of compensation to student loans, a student loan stipend? For whatever reason, employers are like kind of willing to negotiate on a student loan stipend, probably because it's something more akin to a signing bonus, something that they don't have to pay every year. It's not part of your base compensation. And the, um, the more senior physicians in the group uh, probably don't have those anymore, might have them a, a lot less, or don't really know to ask for that. So sometimes they're more willing to, to give on that. But, uh, but yeah, that's an important piece of negotiating with hospital groups and like setting up your plan for what you want to do with your physician contract and your student loan. Yeah, I completely agree because uh, I know I experienced this recently with someone I was talking to that they didn't know that they could actually ask for student loan forgiveness. Um, and so that's, you know, just, and I think your mentality behind that or what the the perceived mentality is, is that it's just a one-time thing. Like, great, we get them in there just one time and we're done. I wouldn't have to deal with this again um, is, is maybe why that they're so receptive to it, but you're not going to get it if you don't ask. Exactly. Any other things that you see like red flags um, or cautions that you would have in someone who is now starting the idea the process of negotiating the contract? So the ways to reduce your leverage in negotiating a contract or, or just ultimately making not the best decision is time. Starting too late, starting way too late in the game, um, narrowing in on only one employer uh, and not doing more interviews. So I encourage, I realize this is a really hard ask for residents, but you really need to inquire about probably at least 10 jobs. You probably need to interview at at least two or three to really know what's out there, understand your work, understand the differences between employers. Um, and then if you can get two offers or more, then you can really negotiate. You can use those against each other to get a better deal. I love it. I love it when someone comes to me with plenty of time, six, nine, 12 months out and two offers in hand and says, Michael, let's get the best deal. How are we going to do this? That's a ton of fun for me. It's really challenging though for a position. Let's say it's already April or May and you got to work in August and you've only really interviewed at one place uh, maybe you don't know exactly how to interview well because you only did it once and you don't really know a ton about the job. You don't know what else is out there. You don't know if the compensation is appropriate because you don't know obligations. And the employer might also know that you're kind of in a bind because you're late in the game. They might be less willing to negotiate with you. Um, that can be really painful. Um, I also see a lot of success for physicians that are flexible on geography. Geography has a huge impact on um, supply and demand of physicians. A lot of physicians wanna live in big cities uh, and they don't want to move a couple hours outside. So if you're willing to be a little bit flexible on geography, the rate, you know, three hours outside of, you know, Milwaukee, Madison are very different than 
being right in Chicago or right in Milwaukee. Um, we live in Wisconsin, so I use that as, as an example. But physicians who like investigate jobs in those areas, they realize that there's like a big city discount, uh, which runs completely counter to every other industry. Like as a lawyer, if I'm going to go work in New York, they better pay me a bunch of money. But if I'm working kind of in a smaller town, uh, then cost of living is lower. So I don't really need as much compensation to work in a small town. But for physicians, it's the opposite. It's really about the supply of physicians that are willing to go to more rural-ish areas. Um, I see a lot of room to negotiate for, uh, for, for physicians that are willing to explore those types of positions. And I agree, you know, if you have an idea of a, a geographic location, I did that as well. So everyone was kind of coming up with the same, like the sign on guaranteed salary. And, you know, clearly that was from the MGMA data, which is helpful to have if you have that. So you kind of know where you're at. Um, but I, I can advise like asking one question that saved me from getting a job that was would have been potentially terrible was I asked them, I was like, how much am I expected to make? after the guarantee is over. And it was about $100,000 less. So yes, yes. That's that's so important. Like, so if you're looking at a job um, that starts you off on a base protection, but then after some period you go on to productivity, there's a few extra questions you need to ask during that time. During the interview process, you don't need to know like the exact numbers or start negotiating on base compensation right away, but you need to know how it works. You need to ask for some examples for physicians that have been successful under that model. What is what, what does that look like? What have they done to make themselves successful? What kind of hours do they put in? What kind of procedures or what kind of um, services do they focus on or provide? Uh, and which ones have not? You want to investigate the the turnover rates, how many people do they hold on to after that initial two-year period? Because I don't, at this point, unless your exit strategy is quite poor, uh, I don't know too many physicians that should really put up with dropping compensation. Uh, Maybe there's a handful of specialties, maybe. Uh, But you really never have to, at, at this point at least, you shouldn't have to deal with that. So if your employer's offerings when they roll over to productivity off of a base protection will pay you less, then you need to know that and you need to be ready to either negotiate out of that or get another offer and issue a notice of termination. Like if you have a notice of termination after that period and you say, look, I'll stay with you, but I need a three-year protection because I'm not going to reduce my compensation because you want to put me on productivity. They might say yes, or they might say like, look, this isn't working out, but you have some options, right? If you're negotiating that type of compensation, you're also going to really want to know uh, and have access to your data. How much productivity are you providing um, during that two-year period? If they count it like quarterly, then even from the first quarter, second quarter, third quarter that you're there, you really want to know what are my numbers? Are they trending up? What are my expectations after the protection period? What kind of activities are helping me do better under this or not? Um, Really kind of have a plan. After like maybe four or five quarters, you should probably know by that time whether you're going to make as much or more under productivity. Another piece I like to negotiate on those types of compensation plans is the right to the data and the right to switch over to production 
if it becomes more lucrative for the physician before that two-year period is up. Oh, interesting. That can be really nice, right? Like imagine that, you know, you're you're working your butt off in year two and you're like, man, if I just had my productivity bonus, I'd make 400, but I'm stuck at 300. If you can negotiate that piece, um, that's awesome, right? And if I was an employer, like think about it from their side. If you have a physician that is that successful, that gung-ho, doing that well, that they are blowing past the base protection piece and making you a bunch of money, um, after only four or five or six quarters, like, why would you not want to reward them? That's a why question that elicits a emotional response. So the thing, back up for a moment, uh, the how and what and why questions, I love Chris Voss, uh, never split the difference. I, I thought that's what was, that was from. Is that, is that, have you, have you listened to that? How am I supposed to do that? <laughs> how am I supposed to do that? I love, oh, I love them. I'm working so cool. more. And I should be paid, you know, based on productivity, but you're paying my, my base. How am I supposed to do that? <laughs> I'm making you $1 million. Long pause. pause. The long yes. pause. Yes, yes. Oh, I love his negotiation. I use it all the time. It's so much fun also to make your negotiating opponent answer your hard question. So you got a hard question. You don't know. I don't know how to evaluate this compensation plan, uh, make them answer that question for you. Why should you have to figure it out? Make them figure it out for you and explain it to you. Just keep make asking. Make them figure how. it out? Yes. Make them tell you. Yes. Mirroring, maybe? Mirroring. A <laughs> little bit of mirroring. I'm hopeful that like this will this will trigger a bunch of your your listeners to to listen to that book because for me it was just super powerful. I love using it. My wife and I use it kind of against each other, but like it kind of prevents arguments because you kind of know like, oh, you're asking the how and the what question. I know where you're going. Uh, and it, it probably prevents some some arguments, but uh, it's really good. Yeah. It, it, well, the best story that I had, I think it's actually maybe in the book where um, his son is basically like watching Chris Voss get Chris Vossed by somebody else and he doesn't yes. even recognize it. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to so if if you if you're interviewing and negotiating against someone that's actually just really full of themselves, then mirroring can be great because all they want to do is talk. So if you just ask, like repeat the last three or four or five words of whatever they said, they're just gonna keep talking. Uh that's entirely possible that it's happening right now. Maybe we're gonna look back on this and that's, <laughs> that's what happened with us. Um, but yeah, if you're just asking questions asking open-ended how and what questions and repeating challenging terms that maybe they haven't defined to you maybe they're not really defining it or explaining it very well but you're just repeating those things back and asking them to explain it uh, you're going to get valuable information you're going to collect so many employer campaign promises that then you can use against your employer when it's negotiation time you promised me this remember our conversation uh, let's get it into the contract. Exactly. And uh, those techniques are a really great way. Um, just like you mentioned, uh, like the open-ended question and the pauses and the mirroring and, you know, and labeling, we haven't really talked about too, you know, like, um, it, those are all ways to get them to negotiate with themselves. And it's actually easier rather than harder. Um, it's the uncomfortable pauses. I think that we all have trouble with. <laughs> it's hard. But, 
the one, the person who maintains the ability to control like the uncomfortable emotions are the one that make the most money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a blast. I, I use it all the time. If, if I could convince physicians like residents during that maybe 12 to 24 month period before they get into that negotiation to just spend eight hours of downtime, even though they probably don't even have eight hours, but like listen to the audiobook. I love listening to the, like the narrator. I don't know if you read it or if you listened through audiobook, oh. but yeah. So the audiobook version, the way he, he uses tone in his voice, like there's something really powerful about that. Yes. Um, the late like night getting, DJ voice. Yeah, the night DJ voice. So uh, <laughs> no, this is fun. I'm glad that you that you. I don't know that that many people uh, have read the book, even though it, he's super. He's got a master class too. Also very fun. Except it's yeah. actually him talking. He's got this really heavy accent. It's a heavy New York accent. It's even better. Yeah, but getting back to the um, the base protection, going on to productivity. There's tons of opportunities to negotiate there. Like if you're producing at a really high level, but they want to pay you like you're not producing at a high level, how am I supposed to do that? You know, do you want to, uh, if you label, you would say, you want to reward me for doing exceptionally well, right? Mm-hmm or try to get them to get to that's right instead of you're right. Yeah. But that's a little bit farther down in the book. Um, but yeah, I love negotiating that piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was a fantastic book for all of us to read. Just, uh, I mean, it's so helpful and uh, in these difficult conversations. It really gets us out of our own head too, which is really the key. Now, I do want to respect your time because clearly, I mean, there's so much to cover and we've already covered a, a great deal of stuff. And so I want to make sure that everyone knows where to find you. Now, I know that I found you on Physician Contracts um, on Instagram, and you also have a website, physiciancontracts.com. Um, and I know those Instagram reels are just valuable. And I love your your mentality behind that and just having short snippets since everyone's busy, you know, just trying to get this, you know, what is it? The um, automobile university, I guess is what people call it. Uh, <laughs> snippets of information uh, on the go. So I definitely recommend everyone go and find Michael Johnson on Instagram, with the physician contracts um, and watch these reels and get to know all the information and really, and I absolutely, I want to make sure we also pitch your plan for the hashtag docs negotiate 2023, because I, your reel that talked about how that's how we gain our power back is the ability to negotiate is, is such a powerful mission. And really, I mean, we're in the business of trying to change medicine and really start to advocate for ourselves. And I think the idea of hashtag docs negotiate 2023, you know, is a really fantastic way for us to kind of unify under that front. I'm so excited for that. If every physician negotiates their contract, it's going to have such a powerful effect for the entire um, for the entire field for everybody. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't win your negotiation, even if you don't get everything that you're asked for. You're going to help the next person. The next person that asks for that thing is going to get it. If we normalize negotiations and stand up for what's right, uh, we can change medicine, and that's ultimately my goal. Um, whenever I start talking to folks uh, looking for help on their physician contracts, the first question that I ask is, what do you want life to look like? And then let's use your physician contract, negotiate it to execute that life plan. 
It's not always compensation. It's probably not going to be the signing bonus. Uh, it's probably going to be more in leverage and exit, probably in obligations. But those specific details uh, are different for everybody. My wife's contract might not work for you or for somebody else. Everyone's a little bit different. If you stand up for what is important to you uh, and for what's right, if you negotiate for autonomy, uh, it's going to help you in the long run. Absolutely. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And I already feel like a, um, you know, a second episode coming. So, you know, <laughs> I'd love to come back. I would love to come back. That'd be a blast. I'll brush up on my uh, never split the difference and we can do a little bit more back and forth. This is a lot of fun. Now that would be a lot of fun. All right. Well, well, thank you, Michael Johnson, for coming on. I really appreciate all your time. And, you know, in the show notes will be places to find you as well. But, you know, awesome. definitely look forward to more cha more chats like this. Thank you so much. Come join me for Stop Hating Clinic this Wednesday, 6 p.m. Central. Go to bosssurgery.com to register.